On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time Imon Irti Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Machan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetoch, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestian Echo. Vientalem again Omgrev, Orkorn Rachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Today, 100 years on from partition, we discuss what's in store for Northern Ireland in its second century. Will it be looking east-west or north-south? and whether it is an identity crisis or opportunity. Catholic or Protestant, Irish or British, nationalist or unionist, Chucky or Law or Ulster says no. Public must have some say in our province. We say never! Partition has failed the people of the island of Ireland. The stereotypical identifiers in Northern Ireland are being challenged as it marks its 100th anniversary. Brexit and the border on the Irish Sea have led to tensions and recent riots in Belfast and elsewhere. But at the same time, the change in population balance has resulted in the possibility of a unity referendum on both sides of the border and a united Ireland being openly discussed. I'm convinced many Irish people would welcome the opportunity to vote on partition, which hasn't served either part of the island well. Now there's an historic opportunity to imagine a new Ireland into being, but it's important for it to be genuinely welcoming to unionists. However, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has ruled out a referendum for now. I don't think the Secretary of State is, is going to be in that position for, you know, not as far as I can see, and uh, for, for a very, very long time to come. And I'm Fiona Sheehan, and you're listening to In Focus, the current affairs podcast from independent.ie. In this podcast, I'll be talking to Martina Devlin, novelist and Irish independent columnist, about her experience of growing up in the Troubles and her views on the future of the North. But first, John Downing, Irish independent political correspondent, on the issues facing Northern Ireland. John, Northern Ireland is never far away from a crisis, but at the moment there seems to be a conflagration of issues coming together uh, all at one between Brexit, the Irish Sea border, Bobby Story's funeral, a, a, a communities feeling that, that they're being left behind. How do you assess the current picture as, as all these different elements are, are colliding? 23 years after the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, we still, still have the same, same difficulty. Uh, loyalist Protestant communities feeling very left behind. There is terrible poverty there. They are to some degree encouraged uh, by the Democratic Unionist Party, who have in a, in a sense licensed them on this occasion to take to the streets. The DUP, who, who are 
the main party of government, have questioned the authority of the police. It's an extraordinary situation. So I think there is a real crisis of confidence in the policing service at this present moment in time. I telephoned the chief constable this afternoon. I had a, a very direct conversation with him and told him that I felt he should resign if he cared about police. Uh, so there are very young people on the streets uh, sporadically rioting. It's very worrying. It's point, been pointed out, for example, that the young teenagers, kids as young as 12 and 13, the kids of 12 and 13 who were on the streets in 1968 and 1969 became the hard men who drove the war into a vortex of violence and, and horror in the 1970s. By They were by then early to mid-20s. So there is that constant fear that we may be going back to the future. And is, is there any resolutions on, on the horizon? So, so take the, the Irish Sea border issue in the Northern Ireland Protocol. Anything that can be done there to alleviate those concerns? There's certainly a lot that can be done in terms of management. They have to accept the fundamental issue that this is an international agreement entered into and uh, twice signed up to by London. Um, the, the, the unionist community in the north were always aware of what was happening. They're suddenly crying foul out of the blue. They have mismanaged this, this whole situation really hopelessly. And um, there is a lot that can be done in terms of the administration of the border in the Irish Sea. Um, there is, for example, it would be a big step, but it would be very helpful if they signed up, Nor if London signed Northern Ireland up to EU food, of what they call phytosanitary regulations, food, animal, animal and plant health rules. Lots of countries do it. Switzerland do it, for example. It's not, it's not a big deal. It would help trade. What the unionists have, have failed to do is sell this deal as for what it is, which is potentially the best of both worlds economically for Northern Ireland. They have huge access to the European Union single market of 450 million people and continued access to the uh, British market, England, Scotland, Wales, 60 plus million people. So the EU has become a bogeyman, which is, is unfair given the contribution that it's actually made to Northern Ireland over the years. So you, you think it, it, that role can still be kind of turned around, they can get a positive out of this this half in, half out? Yes, it's, it's certainly, it's about leadership. And I, I, I'm flabbergasted at the failure of the unionists. One thing I think we always knew about the unionist community was they knew the value of a pound. They knew uh, how to do business and, and trade and so on. And their emotional attachment to the union, that's the un union of the United Kingdom, trumps everything else. But uh, so it's an emotional and very atavistic thing. It's it's extraordinarily foolish, though, in, in, in the short and medium term. But one substantial change that that is, is coming about and will be illustrated quite clearly when the the census results return is that demographic change in, in Northern Ireland. That is, in effect, why the unionist community are, are feeling increasingly marginalised. I think so. And they also see where, where they had hegemony. They, they no longer have control, automatic control of the police and all of these things, which they had for a very long time. The police service of Northern Ireland is 40% nationalist. 
Uh, it is pretty much trying to be even-handed and fair, but some in the loyalist community see that as being unduly pro-nationalist. Um, the census, which was done just last month, we'll have results uh, next, uh, sometime next summer, will probably show a nationalist majority for the first time in 100 years. That is probably a very significant emotional moment. So 100 years on from our tradition, we still very much have a society that is manifestly divided up there. Absolutely. And it is probably the downside of the Good Friday Agreement. There was a warning at the time was that it, it may institutionalise the problem, institutionalise the divide between the two communities who can manage somehow to live side by side, but by simply turning their backs on one another. So... A hundred years on from partition, still seems to be a very divided community uh, in Northern Ireland, and yet a momentum is is building and a public debate around a united Ireland and a border pole a, a lot more, certainly south of the border. But do we really understand what's going on in Northern Ireland, or are we? Are we? Is there a, still a bit of a, a de- detachment and a, and a myopic view about the Fort Green Field when you're looking at it from from Dublin? I'm afraid there is this myopic view. Give us back our Teddy's head. The old the old song used to go. Um, the people are divided in the north. They are profoundly divided, and that is what has is not being addressed in talk about a border poll. And the very people who talk about a border poll and talk about uh, uh, y- unity and so on don't address. The, uh, the view, the feelings of alienation in loyalist and Protestant communities about all of this. Uh, the Northern Ireland was created via political coercion and chicanery in the early part of the last century. There is a big danger that some people want to go that same route again to achieve unity, which would be no unity, because if people aren't united, then... We're at nothing. We're talking about the colour of the pillar boxes, the post boxes. Should they be red or green? Who cares? And those issues, obviously, of of flags and symbols will still be on the the table, regardless of where the government is based as such. Absolutely. Uh, But but as John Hume always said, you can't eat a flag. Uh, People die for flags, but it's hard to get a living from a flag. So, uh, I mean, the the fundamental issues have not been addressed. The question in the South, ask people, do a vox pop and you'll get pretty strong reaction. People saying, yeah, I'd love a united Ireland. Yes, yes, yes. The real question is, are you prepared to pay for a united Ireland in terms of higher taxation? Northern Ireland gets £13 billion sterling per annum from London of a subvention. How is that going to be replaced? How is that shortfall going to be made up? So there's, there's the economic question. There's also an issue that we we have, in, in, possibly in terms of perception on on this side of the border, regarding the NHS versus our HSE. Do you, do you see that being a real attachment issue in, on, from, a, from a practical perspective for people living there? In, in any question of a border poll, it will 
eventually, or hardy comes to hardy, people will make decisions on economic issues. The health service is far better in the north. That's a simple fact of life. The price of cars, for example, the standard of motor car that people expect to be able to buy versus uh, down here, they would be taking quite a step down. They're conscious of these things, and it it would be a huge factor similar to people in the southern jurisdiction having to decide whether they were prepared to pay for uh, a united ireland that was the recent writing in belfast a throwback to darker times martina devlin grew up during the troubles martina rioting on the streets uh, of Belfast and other parts of, of Northern Ireland. What memories did that, that bring back when you see bricks and bottles being thrown over peace walls, a, a bus being being set on fire? Well, I grew up in Oma during the Troubles. I don't have very strong memories of life pre-Troubles. So the Troubles are the framework of my childhood. And the sight of the burning bus in particular sent a shiver down my spine because my father was a bus driver. Uh, he worked for Ulster Bus and he drove all around the north during the Troubles. And you have to remember, nobody had mobile phones then. So when we saw burning buses on the news and he was away at work, we had no way of knowing, was that the bus he drove off in a few hours earlier? Bus drivers were routinely held up because they carried money. Bus depots were bombed. Um, partly to disrupt normal life in the area. And bus drivers were also used to transport bombs. The the buses were hijacked. Uh, Often they were burned out and put across the middle of the road to, um, to block the traffic. And that's what we saw a few weeks ago in the north. But I'd stress that what we're seeing now is isn't comparable with what it was like in the 70s and 80s. People support the PSNI more or less. There wasn't the same support for the RUC. The British Army aren't there. And most people just want to lead a normal life. I wouldn't like to claim that we had a particularly appalling experience. We came through it safely as a family. But certainly things happened to us. Um, Like my first shopping trip, For Christmas as a kid to Derry, what I remember is a bomb scare. I had pocket money saved up and I wanted to buy a fairy for the top of the Christmas tree. And I remember being in Woolworths in Derry and I picked out the fairy, just queued up to pay for it. And suddenly sirens go off and people are screaming and trampling. And I got separated from my mother and swept out into the street, didn't know where I was. And she came and found me. And I remember, you know, how kids are. I remember being raging that we were marched straight off to the bus station and taken home without getting chips in the cafe that we'd been promised. The thing is, I still have that fairy and I put her on top of my Christmas tree every year. And it teaches me that life goes on. And that's the thing. You know, I I hope that we've learned from the troubles People don't want a repeat of the way life was then. And I think the Good Friday Agreement is a really solid framework because it's rights-based. Do you think there was institutional sectarianism and and discrimination against people who 
identified as Irish. Yes. Oh, there's no doubt that there was. One of my first job interviews, I went um, to a newspaper in Belfast for an interview. And two minutes into the interview, the deputy editor said to me, surely, Miss Devlin, socially and culturally, you'd be more at home in Dublin. And the interview ended a minute afterwards. And my father had driven me up to Belfast and I got it, opened the passenger door and got in and he said, what happened? And I told him, I remember how distressed he was that the better world that he had hoped for with his kids wasn't materialising. You know, the idea was we'd get an education and then you'd get on. But until legislation was introduced, that didn't happen. And it was the 90s, really, before it, it did begin to change. And of course, then the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 was a game changer because rights are copper fastened in it. And rights for British people as well as Irish people. I think that's important so that if there are new constitutional arrangements on the island of Ireland, the British, the Good Friday Agreement exists to protect British identity there and that's very important. Marcia, when you see the the riots and the really young kids involved, are you, are you concerned that these kids will have to, to realize, relive the, the sort of uh, violence and, and, and disruption uh, and constant concern that, that you went through during the Troubles? I hope not, and I don't believe so. I was heartened by the sight of community leaders from both sides turning up at interface areas and working very hard to try and de-escalate the tensions. Uh, I thought that that was a really positive thing and I wasn't so conscious of that in my years growing up. It, it, of course, it probably happened from time to time, but it was very notable in on this occasion. During the 1980s, the hunger strike period was very tense and houses were raided. My own household was raided. Um, I have five brothers. Maybe that was the reason. Young men are somehow a source for suspicion. Uh, it is, of course, how they get radicalised when they're raided. It happened in the wee small hours, pre-dawn. Front door was hammered. We were all shouted at to get up. Uh, police and army swarmed into the house. Uh, our back garden and the neighbours' gardens were full of soldiers. They were all armed. I mean, it's a shocking experience to have men in uniform toting great big uh, rifles come into your house, go through every room. You felt really powerless and there was no one to complain to and it was just accepted that that's how the police and the army had the freedom to behave. But it, it was not a time that I would ever like to see return and I don't believe it will because I think people are invested in peace in Northern Ireland. Back to John Downing. John, while, while we're having a, a kind of a public debate down here about uh, a border poll, a united Ireland, possibly a shared island, um, it's kind of hammered about the prince, the, the unionist community not really engaging on this front. So where did they see Northern Ireland going forward in its 
second hundred years? I think they are in the most uncertain phase of their existence. Uh, I, I think uh, they, they have found yet again that they cannot rely upon the, the British Tories. There would be allies. They, this alliance goes back to the 1880s. Lord Randolph Churchill, the orange card is the card to play all of that father of Winston Churchill, of course. More recently, in the period June 2017 to December 2019, uh, the DUP were propping up a minority Tory government. The split second that they were no longer required, uh, that uh, they were dispensed with, where they were regular attenders at Number 10 Downing Street and so on, suddenly, like you would open a trapdoor, they disappeared. And what about Scottish independence? If if that was to happen in in the coming years, how would that I- influence thinking in Northern Ireland? Next week, Scottish voters go to the polls. We expect there will be a majority for a second, a majority returned to the to the Home Rule Parliament in Edinburgh for a second referendum. We'll see that happen pretty sharpishly after that. In the wake of Brexit it is quite likely that Scotland will leave the United Kingdom. Huge impact for Northern Ireland. There are huge emotional, personal and political links between Scotland and Northern Ireland, a sort of Rangers-Celtic-type dynamic. And I think, should Scottish independence go ahead, you could see a huge review of thinking within the Unionist community. 100 years on from partition, once again, Northern Ireland feels like it is at a crossroads. But a united Ireland is far from straightforward. Apart from the politics, there are practical questions about day-to-day life that have yet to be answered. I'm Fiona Sheehan, and you are listening to In Focus. You can follow this debate on independent.ie. Thanks to our producer, Mary Carroll, and sound engineer, Dara Kelly. <laughs>